0: That's what presentism is, and that's the danger it represents. It puts us down a, a false route, really, rather than thinking hard about the problems that we really face. The thing to be aware of is the opinion of individuals,
1: particularly if they are confirming a long-held belief or bias. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanispert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at Army ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, the Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Warrant Officer Class 2, Paul Barnes. Paul is a Staff Officer Grade 2 at the British Army's Land Warfare Center, a Chief of the Air Staff's Fellow, a chief of the general staff's fellow, and was a fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point in 2021. He'll be talking with us today about his MWI article, Learning the Wrong Lessons, Biases, the Rejection of History, and Single-Issue Zealotry in Modern Military Thought. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. And as a special bonus for this episode, they also don't reflect the official opinion of the UK Ministry of Defense, British Army, or Land Warfare
2: Center. Let's get started. Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. So could you tell our audience just a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are now? Yeah, so um, I've been in the British Army for uh, 30 years.
0: I've done numerous tours of Bosnia, Northern Ireland, Iraq, Afghanistan. I broke away from my trade, really, and uh, completed a master's in military history at the University of Birmingham, and became a Chief of the Air Staffs Fellow um, in 2016. Later, I went on to win the Royal Air Force's Salmon Prize for essay writing in 2018. um, And I was assigned to the Royal United Services Institute, RUSI in London in 2018 as the first non-officer fellow and uh, became Chief of the General Staffs Fellow in 2019. And I was a fellow of the Modern War Institute at West Point in 2020-21. I'm currently a staff officer, grade two, at the British Army's Land Warfare Center um, as SO2 Warfare. And I'm the first and only soldier to work at Land Warfare Center as a doctrine writer.
2: Well, that's fantastic. And we're uh, big fans of Modern War Institute. Been a, a partner with them for a long time. And, uh, you know, great segue, actually, because you recently published an article uh, with Modern War Institute, titled Learning the Wrong Lessons, Biases, the Rejection of History, and Single-Issue Zealotry in Modern Military Thought. And in it, you bring up a number of insightful points about both historical and recent events. Can you tell us a little bit about the bias known as presentism and why is it important to understand? Okay, so presentism is the privileging of
0: the present as a guide to future actions over uh, past actions. So... They're really looking at today as if it was unique. Uh, And that means there's a tendency to express itself as a statement of exceptionalism. You know, statements like the world is more dangerous than it's ever been. Technology is developing fast than it's ever developed the future will be dominated by information warfare and the computer rather than the more traditional aspects of warfare. So it's important to understand uh, presentism because uh, because it is wrong, but it's also got a tight hold of a leadership of armies across the world, including my own. General Milley has, insel- has himself spoken about the conceit of presentism. So if I go back and look at those three statements that presentists uh, really privilege, more dangerous than it's ever been. Well, uh, if you ask people in the period 1933 to 1939, I think they might have something to say about that. Or in the period of 1961, the building of the Berlin Wall through the Cuban Missile Crisis and onwards. And then from 83 onwards, 83 to 86, they might consider that the world was just as uh, dangerous. And of course, all of those are within living memory more rapid technological change. Well, I'm going to use a bit of an example here. Um, I'm going to use three generations of my family. So my great grandfather fought in the First World War and was born in 1892. And in the first 50 years of his life, he saw the internal combustion engine, manned flight, the jet engine, the computer, television, radio. My father was born in 1943 and and served in the army uh, for, for 22 years. In the 1960s, uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s. In his lifetime, the first 50 years, he saw the nuclear bomb, personal computer, supersonic flight, space exploration, the internet, mobile phones, and me. I was born in 1969, I'm 52. And in my lifetime, we don't have supersonic airliners anymore. Man hasn't been any further or any closer to interplanetary travel than you've got when I was born. Um, so, you know, is the truth that we're speeding up or is it just that that we feel like we're speeding up? It's, uh, it's, it's a moot point, I suppose. So why do people believe in presentism? Well, some people believe in it because they believe in it, because they believe in it. And I think that comes from a lack of understanding of the past and a lack of context for the past. Uh, the second one is because we need to get a budget the military needs a budget. And if you can't say that the world is more dangerous or that we need to move with faster and more rapid technology, then uh, you're not gonna get the budget share from the politicians. So you have to keep them going. And and this probably accounts for the strange strange definitions of uh, operational domains of war. And then because reputation is important, uh, think tanks, writers, they need to have the novel idea. Uh, I, I often use the example of Mark Gagliotti's idea of the Gar- Gerasimov Doctrine, uh, which is non-existent, but looked for a while like it was going to dominate a lot of thinking about hybrid warfare and things. Um, but even Gagliotti's had to admit that there was nothing really in it. So I think that that is that's what presentism is. And that's the danger it represents. It, it's sucks the air out of academic and military thought discussion and puts us down a, down a false route, really, rather than thinking hard about the problems that we really face.
1: So presentism was, was sort of one half of that article that you wrote, and the other half focused on single-issue zealotry in military affairs. Uh, and you used the recent Nagorno-Karabakh uh, war as a case study for that. And there's been a lot written and analyzed and talked about concerning that war, and on this podcast, we've done that as well. Um, can you tell us what you found when when looking at that case study and how it relates to this issue?
0: Yeah, yeah. So in my work at Land Warfare Center, I was I did an analysis to draw out a a vignette that we could use in the doctrine. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give you what that vignette says because I think it, it ties it very nicely. So in September 2020, the Azeris launched an operation using a complex deception plan designed to force the Armenians to unmask their ground-based air defense network. The Azeris created a chaotic picture, blinding the Armenians to their intentions, deceiving them into emitting radar that revealed their location. This permitted the targeting and subsequent destruction of the Armenian air defense system. Next, the Azeris launched a ground offensive, advancing rapidly into Nagorno-Karabakh from the north and the south, while sealing the province from reinforcement with long range fires and loitering munitions, enabled by uh, surveillance and target acquisition from reconnaissance drones. Although the Armenians inflicted severe losses on the Azeris, they could not reverse the momentum. Steadily, the isolated Armenian strong points were reduced by fires delivered by artillery, loitering munitions and armed UAS. Simultaneously, the Azeris infiltrated light infantry and special forces between the strong points, attacking into depth to seize key terrain objectives. In the final phase of the operation, the Azeris sought to cut the Laching Corridor from Armenia into nagorno Karabakh and threaten the capital of the self-declared Republic of Artsakh, Stepanakert. Uh, relentless pressure on the Laching Corridor in October 2020 strangled the Armenian supply network and led to the capture of the city of Shusha in November 2020, only 15 kilometers from the Artsakh capital. Unable to respond effectively and facing imminent defeat, the Armenians agreed to a ceasefire. The subsequent peace agreements restored much of the territory lost by Azerbaijan in 1994. Although the second Nagorno-Karabakh war was heralded as a new and different, in essence, the Azeris were repeating tactics used by other armies uh, when faced with the seemingly impenetrable defense, gain control of the air domain, fracture the cohesion of the defense by destroying critical capabilities, exploit gaps and weaknesses, destroy the key elements of the defense, bypass the enemy's strongholds and ruthlessly exploit to achieve decisive success. So that's what I found when I was doing it. And what I was drawn to was articles that were appearing on MWI and elsewhere from people who, who are really interested in, in urban warfare and have the belief that urban warfare is the, is the future of warfare. Uh, Well, A couple of things. In terms of urbanisation, most parts of the world are at the same stage of urbanisation that Western Europe was in the uh, early 20th century. And our experience of much of the fighting in Western Europe in uh, in the Second World War, for instance, or even in the First World War, is not urban warfare. In the main, people fight between the gaps because it's easy to fight between the gaps than fight in built-up areas. So... Um, that's the first thing that I'd say, and also one paper particularly talked about uh, the capture of Shusha as being the decisive act of the Nagorno-Karabakh War. Well, no, it's the final act of the Nagorno-Karabakh War, but there's there's two definitions here: decisive and final. Now, if we look into the Second World War, and I use this example, you know, the the battle for Berlin is the final act of the um, of the Second World War in Europe. But it's not the decisive act. The decisive act happens in 1943 at Kursk when the Germans' uh, tank force is destroyed by the Russians. And from that point onwards, they really can't win that war. So the way it is, the, the most decisive point in the uh, Nagorno-Karabakh War is the destruction of the Armenian snow air defense. Because from the point that that's, that's done, it is over, because all the forces on the ground can be seen and destroyed from the air. Um, so that is the decisive point, not the interesting but less important fight for a city in the Karabakh.
2: That's really interesting because um, you know we look back at history as as an example, and as you said. Um, Kind of get focused on single single issue zealotry when it comes to urban warfare, or as we think about it now, the kind of all domain uh, warfare that's that's being discussed. With learning from history, what happens when we learn the wrong lessons from history? How do we avoid those pitfalls? Because we can look back, especially in in further hindsight, and say, "Yeah, that that was not the takeaway from this conflict." Um, But how do we avoid that in the first place?
0: Well, so in the article, I used the example of Sir Ian Hamilton in in the uh, Russo-Japanese War of 1904-105. He was sent by the British Indian Army to be their observer in that war. And he he, uh, placed himself with the northern Japanese force that was pushing its way into Manchuria. What he saw there was that uh, when the Japanese infantry, which was highly disciplined, well-armed, well trained, using modern tactics, came up against the Russians. The Russians uh, would collapse, albeit the Japanese would be unable to continue because they'd used up every ounce of their manpower and their uh, their weaponry. Um, what he didn't see was that the Jap- the Russians, rather, were really poorly led, incredibly poorly led. Uh, they were armed with uh, with weapons, uh, which meant that they had to be fired. Um, large elites from a standing position. So the tactics that the Russians were using were those of the Crimean War of 1854, 1855, not the techniques and, and, and tactics being used by the Japanese. So this meant the Japanese infantry had a, had a superiority over the Russians. Now, what Hamilton decides is that this proves that infantry, even in the face of the modern machine gun or modern artillery, will inevitably uh, still con- still break through. Had he had looked down towards Port Arthur at what was going on there, he would have seen a, a very different story. And the story there was of wave upon wave of Japanese troops being hung up on the wire, um, hit by artillery and machine guns. Um, But being unable to break through into Port Arthur, very much more what we would see sort of 10 years later. Now, you know, some people make the point that 10 years is a long time and not every observer that was there makes the same analysis. But the problem is, of course, that Hamilton's the senior observer and he writes the report. A major or lieutenant colonel might see something different. But when the general says what he's seen and that is in the report, that's the thing that people go with. And um, Hamilton would be the British commander at Gallipoli in 1915, uh, 16, and uh, would see the effect of infantry trying to advance against machine guns and artillery. So the thing to be aware of is the opinion of individuals or groups, particularly if they are confirming a long held uh, belief or bias. So Hamilton was an infantry officer of long Long service. He served in both Boer wars. He served in wars in India. Uh, He was uh, an imperial soldier. Um, He was an extremely bright man. He was very brave, but he was overall an infantryman who believed in the power of the infantry. And, you know, a little bit more balance was probably required in his thinking because his thinking was shaped by his infantry service. And so that's the sort of thing you need to be aware of. Now, learning lessons by committee is. is far safer uh, if a little tedious and boring because everybody will have a perspective it will muddy the water it will be more difficult but i think that the answer is uh, learning lessons by committee because that way there is a balance injected which allows you to avoid those pitfalls
2: so then you know that bring, brings us actually to another great kind of segue with another hamilton um brigadier general hamilton hawkins uh, was an old guard cavalryman um, and was retiring in in from active service in 1936, um, and he basically uh, continued to write and rail against mechanization as this wild idea um, that was just in in the fantasies of of military thinkers um, and that the cavalry would always be important. And and we saw that that was obviously not the case uh, just, just within a couple of years. And so how do you balance between what we actually have available in terms of technology that we know today compared to what we see as maybe emerging technologies um, that we haven't seen fully uh, realized in, in warfare yet. So we've seen, you know, uh, some of those examples before and the, the first hints of further aerial war in the Spanish uh, Civil War and uh, kind of getting these indicators. But how do you balance that? And especially when you talk about limited budgets, um, service, hereditary traditions uh, that, that don't want to go away from these things that they're used to, whether it be Air cavalry, whether it be tanks or things like that. How do you balance between those? Uh, there is a balance. And obviously, history doesn't tell us everything, because if history gave us everything, it would be a really easy job.
0: So what you have to do is take the, take the basis of the historical uh, foundation, if you like, and then uh, build on it with the signals of the present. Uh, now, obviously, you don't always notice the signals are present. Often where, are like in a car, you're driving past at too high a speed to be able to, to see what the signposts are telling you. But uh, I like to think of it in terms of uh, an analogue radio. So, you know, you've got your favourite station and, you know, it's in a narrow frequency band and you history gets you onto the frequency band. And then the present is the tuning. And that tunes you to roughly the right space. So uh, it's the best way to understand it is, um, I think is Sir Michael Howard, the the British um, military historian used to say that the important thing is, is to be not too far away when war comes. So you're never going to get it right, but you need to be close closest to where the character of warfare is going to be in order to, to be successful. I think that's, that's probably the easiest way of, of putting it. Now, yeah, with budgets the way they are, um, with the single issue um, zealot uh, forcing budgets down a certain pathway, we better hope that those single issue zealots have got it right. Because if they haven't got it right, and I don't think they have, uh, then uh, we could be in for
1: uh, a bit of a surprise I think that's a great explanation for what is sort of a a a complicated concept, to be honest with you. Um, And that brings me to my next question. Here is, in your opinion, how can we ensure that this type of thinking gets permeated into the force? Is this something that's that's teachable? I mean, you mentioned the um, the radio analogy. You know, tuning is kind of a fine science. How do we teach this? Can we put this into our professional military education? Well, I personally
0: believe that that it 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 has to be key to our PME. And uh, I would say that the key areas are, you know, critical thinking and recognising bias. Those are areas of of general education that I think think our officers and soldiers should all be trained in. But I think the study of history and the study of doctrine need to be um, far more rigorous and need to be far more important than they currently are. The history will get you to a stage where you can start to understand the present. Um, We have a phrase in the UK, probably a phrase in America as well, but uh, you train for the known and you educate for the unknown. Well, the future is unknown. The best you can do is do decent training, but really it's education that's gonna get you over the line because when you are faced with an opponent uh, using novel methods, you need to be able to think your way out of a problem. Was it not General Mattis who said the most important six inches in the battlefields between your ears? And uh, I I absolutely would believe in that. I think it's also um, an interesting point here is this is really important for soldiers as well as for officers. So I've just started as a student at the British Army's uh, Junior Command and Staff College uh, for six weeks. And as a soldier, even in the first 24 hours, I've been kind of shocked by how little I know of this world. Compared to my fairly limited soldier education, I've had the, the full batch of the British Army's um, soldier education, which uh, accounts for about three weeks over a 22 year career, which sounds appalling, hopefully, to Yuri. Isn't, isn't appalling? Soldiers represent 85% of the strength of my army, and it seems a waste not to invest and exploit that resource just a little bit more. I, I think we've got to remember that everybody plays a role and everybody. Needs to share in a decent education.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great answer. We've said on this podcast many times, with many different guests, uh, that sort of a foundation of critical thinking is absolutely imperative. Um, and we've had other episodes where we talked about those inherent human biases that that color the way we see we see things. Um, I want to ask a quick follow up question, and it's regarding you know the the issues currently going on in Ukraine right now. Do you think? that is going to have an effect on the way we're, we're looking at things in terms of letting presentism affect us in one way or another?
0: I really hope so. Um, I think that it's a clarion call for people to stop and start thinking hard about what we are trying to do with our military resource. In the UK, we've gone down a route where we, we have alternatives of operate and, and war fight and we are trying to resource the operate. So all those actions below combat, below war fighting, rather. So um, what that means is you put all your investment into lighter vehicles, you put it all into uh, information and influence and all those things. Well, hopefully this is sends a message that the age of the tank isn't dead, that uh, hundreds of T-90s on the border will, will not be stopped by a particularly aggressive tweet or by a leaflet drop, um, and that uh, that what you really need is artillery and armour and in combination. So you need combined arms manoeuvre is the answer, not the aggressive tweet or, or, or the particularly effective Instagram post. I think they're probably, probably less important.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're right. Although I've seen some pretty devastating tweets out there. I'm not sure that they're, they're ready to take on <laughs> tanks, but... Um, but right right i mean your your point is well taken there i was
0: going to say you know if, if you have a particularly sensitive tank commander you you might be able to to say something about his mother which which might put him off for that instant that you need to make a you know a critical decision about get some placards made saying tanks out stop the war which which would instantly end it clearly
1: right some some optimally timed tweets can have a great effect on morale devastating Um, so I want to transition now to our rapid fire questions. These are ones that we ask all of our guests. They're always the same. And it gives us a little bit of an insight into who we're talking to. So the first one is what technology or trend keeps you up at night? It's not really
0: technology or a trend, but I think this is important. Um, in 1859, September 1859, Uh, The sun spewed out huge amounts in the geomagnetic storm, which is today called the Carrington event. Uh, The Carrington event wiped out all the electrical circuits on the planet. And there were many in 1859. So if this podcast suddenly dies, it's probably because there's been a Carrington event. Um, The whole point of that is, I think, is that I'm not bothered by technology uh, because if man made it, then man can counteract it. So technology is not really an issue for me. It is the things that we can't. And we're going to have to live with the effect of that. And that could happen at any time. So that's the thing that worries me uh, far more than technology, I think.
1: A few years ago, um, we've discussed the Carrington effect. um, And we had an event with NASA at Langley Research Center uh, here in in Hampton Roads, and, and that was brought up. And Uh, You're exactly right. I don't, you know, the sun is a formidable adversary, and I don't know that we can do anything to defend ourselves against it if it wants to do that. So that 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 would keep me up at night as well. Uh, Question number two: What's something about you that most people might not know that you're willing to share on this podcast? Okay, so
0: I am the uh, the great 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 nephew of uh, Thomas Carlyle. The Scottish historian and philosopher, who is a friend of uh, Stuart Mill and uh, George Eliot, once wrote was the was the founding father of Victorianism. Imagine that! And he wrote histories of the French Revolution and Frederick the Great, and hopefully he'll inspire me when I'm writing my book at the moment.
1: So there we are. Wow, we are in the company of greatness. <laughs> I wish I was. Yes. Uh, and so uh, finally, to round it out, what is your favorite movie? So
0: I'm a bit old fashioned and my favorite movie of all time is Sherlock Holmes and the Hound of the Baskervilles, the 1939 version, which is Spectacular! I love that sort of black and white noir drama from the 30s and
1: 40s. Uh, that seems like a perfect answer. I like how you opened up with "I'm a bit old-fashioned." I got that based off of the article and the, and the podcast. <laughs> I think that is it perfectly suits you. Yeah, yeah.
2: I think I would have been surprised if you had said uh, Blade Runner. What, what's the new one, Matt? 2049. I, I do quite like that. To
0: uh, <laughs> I, and
2: I I watch, you
0: know, uh, Boba Fett. I'm watching that at the moment, and mm-hmm. I love The Witcher. Uh, but you know, I, you know, when I'm sitting smoking my pipe in my, in my study, in my smoking jacket, I like to watch a bit of Basil Rathbone.
1: That's perfect. That's great. (laughs) Um, so before we let you go, do you have a, a Twitter account or a LinkedIn or somewhere where people can follow you or see the work that you've done?
0: Yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn just as myself as Paul Barnes. Um, and I have a Twitter account that I use for a series of talks that I run in the UK when, when we all get back to normal eventually. And that's just called at War Talks. And that's just one word, W-A-R-T-A-L-K-S.
1: Excellent. So that's great. So, uh, you know, join the conversation with Paul. Uh, So, Paul, uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show today and talking to us about this. This is kind of a divergent opinion, which we'd like to have uh, with mad scientists. So we really appreciate you coming on and, and talking to us and informing us. So thanks for coming, Paul. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Warren Officer Class 2, Paul Barnes, for talking with us. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, the Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps us to improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience.